You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. It has become so inexpensive to add connectivity to devices. So for a couple dollars, we can add a Bluetooth or a wireless module to any kind of device. And then magically, it's on the internet. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Carol Terrio returns with an interview with Jay Radcliffe from Thermo Fisher Scientific. He's sharing his advice and security concerns with smart devices with the holiday gift season right around the corner. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories this week, we've got a little bit of follow-up here. Okay. Uh, Why don't I just go ahead and read this? Uh, This is from a listener named John. He says, Mm -hmm. hi, guys. As a longtime listener to the show, I've come to trust your advice. Well, thank you, John. It's very nice of you. I'm especially keen to hear your views on 2FA, two-factor authentication. I know you like Yubi, but that's just another device to carry around, and since we always seem to have our phones, I'm wondering about these. The Google Authenticator app, which seems to be the most popular, has some flaws from what I can see. First, it is installed on your phone, which means that if you lose your phone, you've lost access to all your one-time passwords. There's now the ability to export so you can move to a new phone. This works well. It generates a QR code that appears to have the seeds to generate all the codes. But does the QR code have time limitations? Can I export this QR code, print it out, and keep it in a safe? You want to just yeah. chime in here, Joe? I will chime in on that one. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I'm... <sighs> I don't know specifically, but I would imagine that this is not time specific. Because, I don't think it is. No, because of the uh, the the nature of how this works. When you generate a pseudo random number, uh, it will generate the same sequence every single time for a given seed. This is one of the first things that you learn when you start investigating random numbers in a computer science program. Is you have to <laughs> take your word for it. You have to uh, <laughs> you have to seed the random number generator. Uh, properly. And most random number generators by default will use the timestamp as a seed, mm. right? So somehow Google or whoever is showing you this uh, this code, they've picked some kind of seed that's a random number so that when you are pulling your random numbers based on the time, mm-hmm. then you have uh, you have a distinct list of random numbers. So no, this this should work uh, regardless of when you save it. It should always be the case. Yeah. Okay. Well, John goes on. He says, second, there's no authentication to get into the Authenticator app. Ah, that's a good one. It doesn't uh, require a password or fingerprint to open. So if the phone gets lost and subsequently compromised, he says, not a huge challenge for Android at least, the one-time password app is accessible. I've heard of other OTP applications such as Authy, that sync across secure clouds, but this relies on text messages or emails to allow new devices to sync with the original, which may expose them via SMS hijacking or SIM swapping. I'm not sure whether there is a multi-device application other than Yubi that resolves these issues and would be interested to know your thoughts. I don't know about the vulnerability via SMS message on on using something like Authy. I do know that Microsoft and their authenticator application will let you enable the fingerprint reader on an Android device. So mm-hmm. you can secure it that way. Yep. And mine is mine is secured that way. Uh, I don't know if you can do that with, with Google. Let me check. 
Yeah, there's uh, last week I believe we talked about how um, the built-in password manager in iOS is capable of handling this and syncing it to your iCloud account. Uh, now John seems to indicate he's an Android user, so that's probably not going to be helpful to him. Um, right. I know, for example, um, uh, LastPass, the password manager, they have their own authentication, their own version of the Authenticator app. As you pointed out last week, Joe, this is a and the the um, the Authenticator is an open source protocol, right? And uh, LastPass can make use of that as well, and they sync theirs to your cloud LastPass account, right? So again, if you lose your device. Um, you You're still fine. have access to your seeds because they're stored up in the cloud. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, I think the uh, the thing about the phone being compromised is uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, you got a password on your phone. You have to have the phone. Uh, in addition to that, they have to have your username, your password, your phone. Right. Your password to your phone. Your, you yeah. Know, so, I, 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 you know— uh, I think it's it's a valid point, but I think in terms of how many layers of of, of factors you go down here, right? Um, I suspect someone's going to have to be highly motivated to get through all of that stuff. So, yeah, the the biggest risk here is that you lose your your phone or your device becomes unavailable and mm-hmm. you've lost the seeds. Kind of like you were talking about a couple episodes ago with your Discord right seed. That that is a awful situation, an awful situation. So you need you need to back these codes up somehow. Yeah. Either run that export or storm in the cloud. Yeah, yeah, do both. Right? Or do both, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so, John, I think there are options here, uh, certainly uh, worth exploring. Like I said, some of the password managers will handle this. Uh, as Joe said, you know, it seems like, uh, I don't know, pretty much every cloud provider has some version of this. Google mm-hmm. does, Microsoft does, Apple does. Um, so I think there's uh, options out there to get you what you want. All right. Well, John, thank you for uh, writing in. Uh, of course, we would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, you can send it to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right. Let's jump into our stories here. Joe, why don't you start things off for us? Dave, I want to talk about the Robin Hood breach. Mm. You remember that one? It only happened early November, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. November 3rd, some bad guys got into the Robin Hood system and accessed the email addresses of 5 million users. And just real quick, Robinhood is? Robinhood is a, uh, that's an excellent question, Dave. <laughs> I should tell everybody what Robinhood it's is. It's not a, the Disney movie. No, it's, it's, a, uh, <laughs> it's a trading platform that's app-based. So okay. you can open an account on, on your app and you can send them money and then you can buy stocks. I think they do fractional shares. They're good for small investors, uh, non-professional investors, people like you and me, Dave. Okay. I don't have a Robinhood account. Yeah. Um, because uh, I don't like using my phone for that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, but I, I I am always interested in in watching stocks, and I I, I do a lot of that. It's fun. Okay. Um, so they've taken off recently, right? They're, they've become very popular. Of course, because they're a, a financial app that handles real money mm-hmm. for real people, they have attracted the attention of malicious actors, uh. as any financial institution will. And on November 3rd, Malicious actors gained access to their systems. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they got in via this, a, a very similar way to the Twitter hack from last year. They called into customer service, and they essentially socially engineered their way into the system. Mm-hmm. All right? Mm-hmm. So there's that social engineering angle here. So my recommendation to Robinhood is do what Twitter did now. Do that now. 
Go look at that blog post we talked about on <laughs> Twitter, CyberWire right, with on the Twitter, multi-factor, with the yeah. multi-factor authentication. <laughs> right, right. Send out YubiKeys or some other uh, security key to everybody that works in your customer service organization. Make multi-factor the default way and the only way for people to get in. Mm-hmm. And there's a great set of instructions over on how to do that over on Twitter. Take a look at that. Yeah. Um, if you're not already doing that, you may already be doing that. Sure. Right? Uh, once they got breached, the bad guys started demanding ransom from them, right? They mm. without encrypting anything, they just started demanding money. And that's when Robinhood did did what they should have done immediately. Uh, and and good on them for doing this. They called Mandiant and engaged them immediately to mm. respond to the respond to the breach. Mm-hmm. So uh very good. Here's what they said these guys got or had access to. They accessed five million email addresses, mm. the full names of a different group of about two billion users. Further contact information of about 310 users and more extensive information about 10 users. Hmm. Now, Robin Hood is quick to point out that no social security numbers were breached and no account numbers were breached. Mm -hmm. But Dave, if you were a bad guy and I offered you one of these four data sets, which one would you take? The 5 million emails, (laughs) the 2 million full names, the 310 sets of more complete information, or the the 10... Mostly complete information. Which one would you oh, take? Well, I have to say, Monty, this is a tough choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be door number one, <laughs> door number two, door right. number three, or the ever rare door number four. <laughs> I think I would probably go for the 10 extensive sets because those are probably the most valuable. I think 5 million email addresses are a dime a dozen. You and I could probably just get 5 million email addresses with a Google search. Right. right? So, right. But <laughs> – you, I, I was wondering what you were going to pick here because my choice <clears throat> is the 5 million email addresses. Okay. Right? Because like you said, you and I can go out and get lists of email addresses anywhere. Right. So what am I going to do? I'm going to take one of these other email addresses and cross-reference those 5 million emails that I got from Robinhood yeah. with other sets to see if I can find like names and phone numbers and things. Okay. Right? Then I'm going to build a list of potential or of people I know, not potential, but actual Robinhood customers. Uh-huh. This is the threat model for everybody that has a Robinhood account and was had their email breached. Oh. Okay? So that's what I'm going through. Okay. So this is what bad guys are going to do. They're going to cross-reference your name with your email address with other breaches. Your email essentially is a unique identifier for you. Mm-hmm. By design, it has to be. Right? right? Right. That's why a lot of websites are using these as logins now because there's no chance of a, of a login collision. Mm-hmm. Right? Once I have the email and the phone number and the name I'm going to start making phishing attempts, and I'm going to start making phone calls into these people. I will bet that that 5 million email list will yield more money than the 10 full, almost full sets of information. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Seems like a lot of work, though, Joe. Well, here's the thing, Dave. <laughs> I got programming skills, mad programming yes, skills. Okay, well, I can write a couple Python scripts that yeah. go through the these data sets right. and spit out everything I need in a matter of in a matter of minutes. The advantage is yours. Right. <laughs> Whereas I will simply use the, the, my guile and gift of the gab to call those 10 people. <laughs> You're going to charm the money out of them, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> or just scare it out of them. Right. Now, that's a good one, too. <laughs> that's inter- it's interesting that you and I chose the opposite ends of the spectrum here. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, I, but I think your case is compelling. Yeah. So there are a couple things on here. Uh, one security 
person said, go out and change your password right now, uh, which is probably good because they may have gotten access to password hashes. We don't know. Yeah. Um, couldn't hurt. It couldn't hurt to change your password, right? Yeah. Uh, enable multi-factor authentication on your Robinhood account if it's not enabled already. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure what kind of uh, – I'm not a Robinhood user. I don't know what their workflow looks like. Yeah, you think if they're handling money, they must have multi-factor. And if they don't, find someone else. Right, yeah. <laughs> time, to, time to close your Robinhood account right, and move your right, money somewhere else. Right. Right. Eric Crone from our sponsor, No Before, is quoted in this article. And he said, bad actors behind these attacks are often highly skilled and very convincing when they get a potential victim on the line. Unfortunately, technology is not as good at stopping these attacks. So the best defense against these attempts is to educate the people and train employees. Mm. So, uh, and, and this applies also to the people who've had their information stolen. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, that's because they're going to send you emails that, and text messages and phone calls that say they're coming from Robin hood. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how they're going to attack you. Alicia Townsend, who is a technology evangelist. I want to get that job, Dave. <laughs> yeah. Go around evangelizing technology. Yeah, you'd be good at that. I sure. think I would. Yeah. She works at One Login. She says cybersecurity education needs to occur more than once a year, and she likes it to be in the form of self-based online training, and it needs to be spread throughout the year, which is true. Yeah. Absolutely true. The, the more frequently you put this in front of users and customers and, and employees, the better off you are. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, certainly word to the wise there. It's an interesting story. Uh, and uh, yeah, again, I'm, I'm just fascinated that, uh, that you and I came at it from different uh, points of view, but right. I think, and neither of us went for the middle. <laughs> we yeah. went for the extremes. <laughs> yeah, actually, I think the list of names is fairly innocuous because yeah. there's that, that is not a unique identifier for somebody, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, the 310 and the and the 10 more complete, most complete, yeah. are, are very damaging. Uh, but I think the, the, the value here lies in the volume. Okay. That's my opinion. I yeah. Mean, All right. Well, we will have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, My story this week, uh, actually, this came to me by way of LinkedIn, uh, but it's actually from a blog uh, written by a gentleman who goes by the name The Hatless Elder. Hmm. uh, And uh, he subtitles his blog, Open Source Intelligence for Everyone. And uh, this is an article he wrote. It's titled LinkedIn Fakes, A Wolf in Business Casual Clothing. Mm-hmm. I love it. Okay. <laughs> so, I'm listening already. So uh, this gentleman was uh, perusing LinkedIn and, and the uh, invites that uh, we all get on LinkedIn. If you're over on LinkedIn, you probably get invites practically every day. Right. I know I do. I do. Um, and what he noticed was that a, a lot of the invites he was getting were very similar to one another. Hmm. Uh, they all had a, uh, smiling, uh, youngish woman's face, a uh, professional woman, you know, probably in her thirties or something like that. Right. Um, but, uh, fairly generic, uh, nothing unusual about them. Um, backgrounds were generic wide shots of different cities around the world. Um, and the invitations were always pretty similar. Um, and based on this person's experience, the hatless elder's experience, he started suspecting that these images were artificially generated. Aha. Uh-huh. Right. That's so, funny that you say this story because yesterday I got an invite from somebody that had a, a, a the similar profile here, you know, the same kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, they didn't have a background, but 
their image looked like it came directly off of this person does not exist. Okay. Yeah. I thought it looked like that, but I submitted it to a to an analyzer, and it said, "Man, maybe not." Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, well, this person points out that these photos can be hard to spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes things stand out. Like hair will look funny, teeth will look funny, but most of the time, and certainly if you're just breezing through, you know, if you have half a dozen requests and you're not analyzing the photos, it's they're good enough that it's easy to just say, yeah, that looks like a real person. Click accept and move on. Yeah. And like you were saying, there are these uh, online sources that just generate these as many as you want. They'll make them. (laughs) Right. If you go to thispersondoesnotexist.com and just keep hitting refresh, you'll get a new face every single time. Right. Right. So the thing that that, uh, this guy noticed was he said many of these have a short bio section talking about who they are. And he noticed that a few of them have lazily repeated each other. So he took that bio uh, and he used uh, some of his uh, Google abilities. He searched on LinkedIn for the phrase, I've had an interesting career with several wonderful companies, but being a world-class HR consultant and practitioner has always been my passion. Came up with 95 people who (laughs) Who have that exact same. Exact same description. Right? You smell that, Dave? Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a bunch of bots. <laughs> right, right. Um, so uh, he tried a few more. There's one that's, uh, I've made a name for herself as in, I've made a name for herself. I. It's what it says. I've made a name for herself as an international HR and staffing consultant. There's another one. I am a consummate networker, thinker, traveler. And there's one that says, changing the world through providing quality jobs to people in developing economies. Again, these came up with hundreds of matches wow. for the exact same descriptions. Uh, now, uh, he speculates what this could be for, that this is really just a first step of getting into someone's organization, mm-hmm. right? Just lowering your defenses. You know, they could, once they get you uh, to agree to uh, connect with them on LinkedIn, they could reach out and say, hey, I've got a job here. Uh, just open this PDF. Right. You know, enable macros sure. or, you know, uh, you're being underpaid where you are. You're underappreciated. You know, let's let's connect and talk about job opportunities. Right. First thing to do is uh, say, I, I found this great job opportunity. Uh, the salary range is from this to this. Right. 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 Um, so uh, he doesn't go into any specifics about, you know, following through and, and seeing exactly what these people are up to. No, none of them followed up with him in that way. But it seems like there's certainly laying the groundwork for something like this. And as you mentioned, Joe, there's I, I think there's no question here that these are uh, generated by bots. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a shame that if it was this easy for the hatless elder to find these duplicates just using Google, why isn't LinkedIn? That's an excellent question, Dave. I was wondering if if LinkedIn has read this article or commented on it. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's not hard. They're right. This is this is pretty easy. This guy just did a little bit of Google dorking, and bang, this is what he gets. Right. All this uh, all this threat intelligence on these guys. Yeah. Uh, this blog post also has some uh, nice links to some tools and things that he uses in his 
you know, techniques he uses for his Google dorking and and uh, some of these databases that generate these images. So if you're into those sorts of things, it's an interesting read and, and you could uh, come away with some nice uh, tips and techniques for trying to suss these sorts of things out. In this article, does he have a link to a tool that will identify a, a generated image, a synthetic image? Yeah, so he references uh, an online uh, website called Sensity.ai, and if you go there, uh, that's a service that uh, they do identity verification for onboarding. So they basically they're looking for these artificial uh, types of images, so right. they can help you suss that out. So, uh, but before we wrap this up, Joe, I mean, you know, when you're looking through your LinkedIn requests. Uh, how do we protect ourselves against this sort of thing? What are the red flags here? Uh, well, they're getting fewer and far between, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, you can do what the hatless elder did here and, and notice a trend maybe, but if you don't notice the trend, you don't have a mind for pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not. Everybody wants to build their LinkedIn network and I have close to a thousand connections on there. I'm sure some of them are fake. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I really don't see a real risk here until these accounts start interacting with you. Mm-hmm. Be mindful of what you put on LinkedIn or any other social media. Um, you you might want to adopt a policy of if I haven't worked with you or haven't met you in person, then I don't accept your LinkedIn connection. That that would be okay as well. Um, yeah. For people in our position, that's not really possible because we're so world famous, Dave. Um, <laughs> yes, right. We're world famous in podcasting. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I would say, too, if someone reaches out to you on LinkedIn in, in a position like this, an HR person or a hiring person, a recruiter, uh, don't just trust their existence to LinkedIn. Do, right. do your due diligence. Yeah, search around. Yeah, and, uh, and, and even then, you know, just because they show up on a website somewhere else, that doesn't mean necessarily that they're real. So look for some credentials, see if, see if they know someone you know, and, you know, just check around. Just yeah. make sure. It's, it, it's a shame it's come to this, but— uh, Right, but it has. <laughs> it's, it's not all these people are real. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that blog post. Again, it's from the Hatless Elder, uh, and I think it's an interesting one worth checking out. All right, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named Michael who is trying to sell his car. It starts off with a text message and then moves on to email. Mm. So why don't you, I've Put it all in the uh, in the script here. Why don't you read the parts that say Dave? Okay. And the first thing is a text message allegedly coming from this person's spouse. All right. My husband like to know if your vehicle still available for sale. If yes, please email him on this email address with last price. Yes, the Impreza is still for sale. It's listed for $11,250, negotiable. If you'd like to inspect it, please let me know and I can arrange it a time. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for the response. I would have loved to call you directly, but due to the nature of my work, I work with the Australian Army Corps. Ooh. We do not have access to phones at the moment, (laughs) which is why we contacted you with an internet messaging facility. I'm buying this for my first son, who just graduated the top of his class at Aviation University. I want it to be the perfect graduation gift for him, and I'm making a surprise package. 
Does it have any history I should be aware of? And why are you selling it, if you don't mind my asking? I don't mind asking, adding an extra $200 for you just to take down the posting. I'm already in talks with freighters that'll handle the pickup and delivery. I will really appreciate it if you can email more information. Due to the nature of my work, I'm a very busy man working all day. I'm an operating officer, and presently on board, I don't have access to my bank accounts online as I'm not with my credit card details. But here I have my ANZ bank account link up with my PayPal account, so I'll be paying you through that account to your nominated bank account. Or better still, if you has a PayPal account, please get back to me with your BSB and account details or PayPal account so I can proceed with the payment and contact the courier agent who will come to pick it up and deliver it in NT for my son. Await your reply. Now, Michael is already wise to this scam. Mm. He goes... Thanks for your email. I, and Michael is, I assume, also a, uh, Australian, but I'm not going to attempt the accent. <laughs> I'm no Dave Bittner, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Count your blessings. <laughs> he says, thank you for your email. I'm sure you must be proud of your son to want to buy him a car. Congratulations to him on his hard work. This car is in great condition and has no issues to be worried about. I think your son would be very happy. May I ask what his name is? I appreciate you are a busy man, and I would like to help you. So I am happy to take the advertisement down. However, I'm selling the car to pay for surgery for my auntie. I need as much as I can get. She really needs breast augmentation due to a horrible jet ski accident. (laughs) Would you be willing to give me an additional $750 to take the ad down? If you can make a PayPal transaction by tomorrow morning, I'll be able to put down the deposit for the surgery tomorrow. It would mean a great deal to our family and change her life. Please let me know as soon as possible so we can sort out payment and the car immediately. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. I appreciate your honesty with detailed explanation with regards to your words on the item status. Just to let you know, I am keen and interested in buying the item. I will make the payment now once you get back to me with your bank details, and I believe I will not be disappointed from buying this from you. Now kindly get back to me with your bank details so that I can send you the payment through my PayPal account into your bank account, and we can schedule a pickup time and date for the pickup. Your full name, account number, BSB, phone number, and price. (laughs) So this is not how PayPal works, right? Mm. (laughs) You don't send somebody else your banking. That's kind of the purpose of PayPal. Right. Is to be the middleman to send money without me having to give you my banking details. Mm. Right. So uh, Michael replies, of course, I'm happy to help find a way to make it work. Would it be possible to make payment using Woolworth's gift cards? (laughs) I don't want the money to go through the bank. I'm worried if my cousin knows that I have the money... In my account, he'll poison my cats. I've been breeding and showing them for years. Last time he broke my nose and kicked two of my cats. Aww. I'm sure you understand. Who kicks cats? A mm. fictitious cousin does. <laughs> so those are fictitious kits, pro- kicks, probably on fictitious cats. <laughs> right. So don't worry. <laughs> no cats were armed in the making of this email. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the price of the car is 11250 plus an extra 750 for taking the advertisement down. I know the gift cards can be up to $500, so you'll need 24 of them. You can buy them online and send them to me via email. As soon as you email me the gift card numbers, I'll let you know where the pickup location is. Hope you have a good evening. Thanks again, Michael. Okay, this is brilliant. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I I just have to say, Michael, hats off to you for turning the tables and using gift cards. (laughs) For Woolworths. (laughs) Right. Are they still around? They're not around anymore. I believe they are still a thing in Australia. Oh, really? Yep. Okay. Pretty sure. Pretty sure. Yep. 
Yeah. In fact, yeah, pretty sure. So, uh, yeah, this is great. Uh, t- to turn turn it around on the scammer, and I suppose this is probably the last that uh, the scammer heard. Yeah, that's the end of the chain. From them. <laughs> right, the jig was up. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's a that's a fun one, and uh, thanks to Michael for sending that in. Again, we would love to hear from you. Uh, you can send your catch of the day candidates to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, it is always a pleasure to have Carol Terrio return to the show, and this week is no exception. Uh, she interviewed Jay Radcliffe. He is from Thermo Fisher Scientific, and he is sharing uh, his unique advice uh, from his position in the industry about smart devices, especially with the holidays coming up. Here's Carol Terrio speaking with Jay Radcliffe. So today we chat with Jay Radcliffe. Now, he currently is working with Thermo Fisher Scientific, but he has worked with a number of different companies in the past. So first, Jay, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Tell me about Thermo Fisher Scientific. I currently work at Thermo Fisher Scientific in product security research and testing. So my job is to make sure that the products that Thermo Fisher sells are safe to use on the internet and safe to connect to networks. And Thermo Fisher produces a lot of devices for the scientific community. Particularly right now, we are very focused on the COVID-19 testing and vaccination products. So we produce uh, a lot of equipment that people use to produce vaccines and to do all of the testing that people need uh, throughout the world. You've been involved with medical devices for a while. You've made your name with insulin pumps. That is correct. I'm a type 1 diabetic, and uh, I always say that I'm very fortunate to have access to a lot of different types of equipment to kind of look at the security of the products that that keep me alive. Uh, And that has been a a very interesting journey, we'll say. (laughs) Now, I was looking uh, you up before we did this interview, and you have a lot of titles that the press have given you over the years starts off with hacker, and then experimental hacker, and then security researcher, and then medical device security expert. And I would say basically when what you said, they're probably all true. Yeah, I think that that is very accurate. Uh, it, is, it is true. Um, you know, and there's a lot of uh, discussion about the term hacker and if that's a good term or a bad term. But, you mm-hmm. know, I embrace it. I think that you know, a hacker is somebody that that looks at something and makes it do something that it wasn't designed to do, uh, that kind of pushes the boundaries of what the designers had in mind. And that could be a computer or that could be a, anything, really. Well, that brings me on to our topic, because Christmas is Lumen. And uh, I know and fear Christmas time because I know everyone goes out and buys smart devices for their kids, their grandkids, their parents. And I thought you'd be a perfect person to tell me about the dangers of that or any guidance to help us, you know, guide us through this world of like infinite devices from infinite companies. Oh my, yes. I have three children ranging from 16 to 10 years old, and they want all the devices that connect to everything. I don't even know where to start. So there's so many things in my view that are connected that don't need to be. Do you have that feeling as a security expert or do you totally understand why everyone is trying to smartify every gadget that we use? Oh, absolutely. Uh, this is something that I see all the time. I have given many talks about 
how we connect everything and everything needs to be connected. And do we need to do that? You know, and the example that I give all the time is like a toothbrush, right? There's electronic toothbrushes that have Bluetooth in them now. So you can keep track of how long you brushed your teeth, what pressure you used, all of this information. But on the backside of that, there's there's security concerns with it. With In regards to like this toothbrush, there was a security vulnerability that allowed uh, different attackers to see who owned the type of toothbrush. So you could get like a listing accidentally of all the email addresses of everybody who owned this particular brand of toothbrush. <laughs> We've already put a battery in it. That's right. Let's put a Bluetooth in it. Yeah. Right. Some of it is, it has become so inexpensive to add connectivity to devices and manufacturers are always looking for ways to distinguish themselves from their competitors or to make a higher end product. So for a couple dollars, we can add a Bluetooth or a wireless module to any kind of device. And then magically, it's on the internet and we can connect to it and we can collect all sorts of data and do all sorts of things. You've looked at a lot of IoT devices in your time. What kind of rough percentage would you say just don't meet your security bar? Like your security kind of like this is the level entry that I think it's okay for production or, and for sale. You know, what I'm finding is that when I look at these devices, the ones that you find that have are major name brand players, the Philips of the world, the Amazons of the world, um, those types of uh, major manufacturers, they pretty much have their act together. And a lot of times they have a security program. They have security professionals like myself working on these products. It's when you get into the world of knockoffs and, um, you know, generic brands, that's where really things start to become a little more dangerous. Because right now, like a lot of IoT devices are now probably going to start introducing some kind of facial recognition, right? Do you, have you seen that starting to happen? Yeah, yeah. We're starting to see that more and more and, and, and leveraging things like uh, Apple's Siri platform or Amazon's Alexa platform. So that way you can talk to your toothbrush and you can tell it, you know, your thoughts and feelings, and it can, can help you with, with your brushing your teeth. I'm such a Luddite. I'm a Luddite. I think this scares the poo out of me. It really does. It is a very interesting world, you know, and people, uh, people expect these things to be connected, and they, that's how they choose to interact with their, their devices and their world these days. Can I ask you, um, maybe this is too personal, but like how much IoT do you have in your living quarters with your family? Do you like, do you embrace it or you embrace it because you understand it and you know which ones are safe and which ones aren't? Or are you like a really, it's got a really, I'm, I'm tough on this. You know, because of the kids, they, they have a lot of things. You know, the one thing that I always focus on though is I, and I tell this to a lot of people, is that I know there's a trade-off that I'm trading a little bit of my privacy for the convenience of having that connected device. I think that these things always come with, with a little bit of trade. Like if you want, if you're very concerned about privacy, then you shouldn't have a lot of these devices. But you lose some of the convenience features of these devices. And if that's important to you, then you can trade that. So Christmas, people are buying stuff for kids. And for everybody, is there any, like, I've already heard you say, stay to well-known brands. That's probably a good idea. Don't go to knockoff brands. Stay with the big names, potentially, if you don't know what you're doing. Is there any other little tips that people to help them navigate this very complicated world? 
Yeah, I, you know, I think that one of the most important things from a security perspective is always going to be about passwords, you know, and as a researcher and as somebody that's in the industry, a majority, like probably over 70% of the security vulnerabilities that we see somehow relate to a password from a user. So I think it's really important for consumers to pick good passwords and to know how to pick good passwords. Mm. Are you a fan of password managers? There's a number of them out there. Humans yeah. can't remember if, you know. <laughs> I can't remember anything. <laughs> if you follow all the rules, kind of like a gremlin, right? You have to follow all these rules. And the rules are you have to have a different password for every account that you have. And there's hundreds and thousands of accounts that you have now. So it's impossible to, yeah. to memorize all of those. So I think a password manager is a great idea. I wonder if one of the big things with these IoT things that they set up default settings. And I wonder how many people go, oh, the default's going to be safe because that's, you know, they've set it for me and I don't even know what I'm doing. So may as well just stick it there. And I, in my experience, although it's like a fraction of yours, I found a lot of default things are, um, are designed for connectivity, but not for privacy or for security. Right. They're really designed so that way the user and the, the end consumer has a, a very easy path to get these things. Mm-hmm. You know, they want you to have a great experience using whatever toothbrush or whatever widget that you're using um, to, that connects. So if it's very hard to connect and it's very difficult to use, then that makes the user kind of put it back in the box and return it. So I think that you're right. I think some of the default settings, some of them, um, can be uh, have less security. Yeah. And it's just important, I think, if you're going to buy this stuff, make sure you look at it. Don't just plug and play. That's, you know, take some ownership of it because it's your privacy, right? That's that's right. You know, and I think that it's, you know, it's a good thing to know, um, you know, where those where those things are and, and maybe understand that you're 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 giving up some data um, to the to the to the manufacturer. You know, you know, I'll use the toothbrush example again, you know. It's very interesting that they can collect all of this data from people that use these types of toothbrushes and they can say, oh, you know, we can see that, you know, consumers that use these toothbrushes are only brushing twice a week or they're only brushing for 30 seconds at a time. And it can help you adjusting that. It can say, oh, you know what, you are more, you're doing more than the average user is. And that can be very helpful if you're trying to like fight cavities or let's say you have kids like I do. You can say, oh, look at this. The app is telling me you're not brushing long enough. And that that can be a big help. But you are trading off a little bit of that privacy because they are collecting data on that. I know. I, I think it's a lot of privacy, but then, you know, I'm on the other side. So. <laughs> um, Jay Radcliffe, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really hope people take heed and listen because you're very um, IoT positive by IoT safe, right? And it's good to have someone like you on because I'm a little scared of it all still. That's right. We'll keep looking at these devices and people like myself will keep trying to make them safer and, and, and better for the consumers to use. Absolutely. Jay Radcliffe, experimental hacker, security retrieval, medical device security expert, etc. from Thermo Fisher Scientific. Thank you so much for chatting to us today. Thank you very much. (laughs) All right, Joe, what do you think? It's it's good to hear someone who has skin in the medical device game. Mm. I mean, literally. I mean, this guy is uh, a a type 1 diabetic and, and has... 
uh, an insulin pump and monitor. You know, I have a friend who is uh, in the same situation, yeah. and and I worry about her uh, insulin pump a lot. And when she and I have discussed it, mm-hmm. uh, so mm-hmm. uh, and of course we don't discuss it anymore because it kind of makes her uncomfortable. So, <laughs> um, I really appreciate Jay's position here. Yeah. Uh, when it comes when it comes to the term hacker, I'm in Jay's camp as well. I, I think a hacker is someone who finds un, unintended use cases or finds a way around an obstacle. Uh-huh. You know, something you put in the way. And I don't think that's always malicious. That's why when I say, uh, when I'm talking about guys who are doing bad things, I say malicious actors are bad guys. Mm-hmm. I don't say hacker. I deliberately don't say hacker. Okay. It's no surprise that larger manufacturers have better security. Yeah. They can afford it, right? Amazon does a really good job of security. They may have to do a good job of privacy, right? We, we may have our concerns about how we're tracked all over the internet. Every time we search for something on Amazon, we see the ads pop up everywhere we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the security is pretty good. Mm-hmm. And those are two different things. Uh, interesting that 70% of the issues are caused by user password issues. Hmm. Weak user passwords or default passwords. I, I find that interesting. Again, we hear Jay say, use a password manager. Right. When you use these devices, understand that you are making a trade-off. That's very important. And and actually, um, I'm going to go back to the large manufacturers. Most large manufacturers are good. Some are not good at their security. Mm. Um, and we do connect way too many things to the internet. Every single thing you connect to the internet is more surface area that is exposed and needs to be defended. Mm-hmm. And there is tons of information that these ma- that these manufacturers collect about you that you no longer control. Mm. So you got to ask, do you really need your toothbrush connected to the internet? <laughs> uh, like in the example that, that Jay was talking about, or do you need your refrigerator to connect to the internet? Mm-hmm. Uh, when is the next software update for your toothbrush coming out? <laughs> I bet the answer to that question is never. Can you, can you brick your toothbrush? Right. Can you brick your toothbrush? <laughs> I tried to root my toothbrush, Dave, and uh, I accidentally bricked it. And Carell says that she's a Luddite for not doing this. I don't think that we're Luddites. Yeah. Right? We're not opposing new technology. We're not, you know, smashing looms in the woods, as it were. <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking about stuff that might actually be bad for us and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and I, and I, I'm I'm hesitant to use the term Luddite because, you know, I'm all about new technology. I want to see new stuff happen and, and all these cool things. But, I, you know, the amount of information we've all given up and the number of data breaches and the, the just the sheer volume of personal information that we've all lost yeah. is staggering. Yeah, I, I guess for me, it's it's everybody has to make their own risk assessment and their own value proposition. Right. You know, if you want to connect your refrigerator to the Internet because – when you're at the grocery store, you want to be able to look on your phone and have your refrigerator tell you whether or not you have milk, right? Like, that's a value proposition. Right. You know, do I have milk? Ah, I forgot to look in the refrigerator. No problem. I'll check with my refrigerator. <laughs> my right. refrigerator says, yes, you have milk. You know, so, so if and if that value, if the value you get out of that is worth the risk that you're taking by putting that information out there, by hosing up your refrigerator to the internet, right. well, then for you, it's probably worth it. But it's not worth it for everybody. No, it's definitely not worth it for me. Yeah. I I am never putting a refrigerator on the internet. Yeah. I I just don't think I'm going to ever do it. (laughs) You're going to say, you're going to be out of milk one day and you're going to say, dang, I wish my refrigerator was connected to the the internet. My cat's going to be very angry that she doesn't have her little bit of milk in the morning. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, our thanks to Carol Terrio again for bringing us uh, that great interview with uh, Jay. 
uh, Jay Radcliffe. Uh, we do appreciate uh, her doing it, and we appreciate him taking the time for us. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 